Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening to this. Welcome back to the investment series by Elevate Thinking, led by myself, Zach, and my associate, Kabir. This is episode four of our 10-part investment series, Kabir. And today, we're going to be switching up our discussions and talk about current events and its implications in the financial realm and business within the American economy. More specifically, we're going to explore how the coronavirus or COVID-19 has affected the American economy on the macroeconomic level. Let's begin with some background and information on the coronavirus first. The coronavirus, otherwise known as COVID-19, is caused by the coronavirus called SARS-CoV-2. Coronaviruses are a large family of viruses that are common in people and many different species of animals, including camels, cattle, cats, and even bats. Rarely, animal coronaviruses can infect people and then spread between people. This occurred with the MERS-CoV and SARS-CoV, and now with this virus, that causes COVID-19. The virus that causes COVID-19 is thought to spread mainly from person to person, primarily through respiratory droplets produced when an infected person coughs or sneezes. These droplets can land in the mouths or noses of people who are nearby or possibly inhaled into their lungs. Spread is more likely when people are in close contact with one another within about six feet. COVID-19 seems to be spreading quickly and sustainably in the community, also known as community spread in affected geographic areas. Community spread means people have been infected with the virus in a city, including some who are not sure how or where they even became infected. There's currently no vaccine to prevent coronavirus disease in 2019, once again, also known as COVID-19. The best way to prevent the illness though is to avoid being exposed to the virus. Indeed, the virus is thought to be spread mainly from person to person in a few following scenarios. Between people who are in close contact with one another or within about six feet, Uh, from respiratory droplets produced when an infected person coughs, sneezes, or even talks. These droplets can then land in the mouths or noses of people who are nearby or possibly be inhaled in their lungs. Some recent studies have have suggested that COVID-19 may be spread by people who are not showing any symptoms. Now, please stay updated on all government legislation, protocol, and recommendations. As such, we strongly implore all people to heed these guidelines and other actions recommended by health professionals to stay safe during this crisis. With that being said, let's move on to the virus's impact on business. Thank you, Zach. Now, we're going to see that since its discovery, the coronavirus has quickly made its way around the globe, infecting people in nearly every continent. As a result of its relatively quick transmission abilities, businesses, households, and the government has responded to these issues in the pandemic in unprecedented manners. By doing so, the global economy has observed massive and necessary disruptions in its pre-coronavirus state. As of April 2020, legislators have begun to take strides towards softening the challenges with the virus on the healthcare sector and to better stem the economic pain. Now, if you have stumbled across this video podcast to find out what's happened to the American and global economy, you've come to the right place. When we analyze the unexpected sudden economic slowdowns, the first thought of many economists is to highlight the global pandemic that is the coronavirus, and they are absolutely correct. Because of its unpredictability, the economic impacts of the virus have also been unpredictable and full of uncertainty. The pandemic hurts nearly every industry and sector within the economy and has managed to transform healthcare problems into economic challenges. For instance, families and businessmen are no longer allowed to travel, impacting the travel and tourism sector. Supply chains have also been disrupted and are no longer um, in terms of like, I guess we can kind of talk about in terms of the variable costs of these firms in their production processes in a sense that they've risen above the total revenue in manufacturing shutdowns. 
Also, we see that worker productivity has fallen as people fall ill and become increasingly worried about their health due to the risk of being exposed and that healthcare workers on the front lines battling the virus have the risk of being infected themselves. However, the health and safety of the more significant population has been held as Congress's highest priority, not the economic effects of the situation. The government must work to ensure that there is enough diagnostic, protective, and therapeutic equipment available to accurately detect and mitigate those who may have been exposed to the virus. On top of this, however, policymakers must also keep in mind those workers who are particularly economically vulnerable, who have to choose between working while they're sick and staying home and keeping safe. This will bring into debate the need for sick leave payments and medical and family leave scenarios for nearly all businesses. As a result, employer benefits, in a way, must be expanded upon so those who are self-employed are able to find a stable financial floor upon which they can rebound back to the pre-corona levels of business success. Yep. And on top of these healthcare concerns, economic uncertainty has been soaring. Economists, government officials, and families are still evaluating the true extent to which the pandemic has led to the economy's fallout and how to deal with the situation at the moment. Now, the length and the depth of this downturn are still unknown as the measures that have been implemented to contain the virus are even being tested to determine their effectiveness till this day. Now, economic uncertainty, unfortunately, has exacerbated many of the effects of the fallout. Businesses have begun to pull back and shut down due to a lack of customers, but also if the situation might get worse. Families are cutting spending because they're worried about drops in income or income volatility, and even if they might have a job the next day. <clears throat> Overall, these responses are the ones that have worsened the economic situation, dropping both the aggregate levels of supply and demand. And we see that the federal government has the ability to address this widespread and growing uncertainty by revitalizing the economy through fiscal and monetary policy responses. At this point, legislators and leaders in DC ought to be clear and transparent in their actions and motivations to take the necessary steps to stop the current economic freefall, no matter where the problems occur and how long they are to last. Now shifting gears, let's talk about the economy. Amidst the coronavirus outbreak, the American economy has undergone extreme macroeconomic reform. Specifically, the economy has witnessed a robust negative aggregate supply shock and a negative aggregate demand shock. The observed negative supply shock comes from the disruption of global supply chains, the deterioration of worker health and productivity, and increased government regulation in the economic and manufacturing activities both within the United States and its trade partners overseas, most notably of which stands to be China. For example, the case of high-tech industries such as smartphones, automobiles, and computers. American firms have been having trouble bringing to market finalized goods and services because of a lack of resources, labor, and productivity. Now, moreover, although the public and media may claim that the U.S. has experienced a positive demand shock to some extent because people have been excessively purchasing and hoarding goods such as toilet paper, hand sanitizers, and other essentials, the American economy should continue its course with a negative demand shock. And we see two fundamental reasons why this is the case. First, entire industries and sectors are breaking down and in some cases shutting down temporarily in the short run. Notable examples include firms in the areas of housing, hotel and lodging, travel and airlines, and food and beverages. Why? Because consumers and customers are leaving their households less often than usual due to the fear of being exposed and government regulations are prohibiting mass gatherings and other social events. This indicates that Americans are purchasing fewer goods and services overall. And second, when firms undergo lower economic productivity and production, 
or in some cases forced to even shut down in the short run, workers are cut down, reducing household income and therefore consumer spending and business investments. Now you may be wondering why? Because input costs and prices are sticky slash stuck in the short run and have very little flexibility due to commitments such as yearly wage contracts. As a result, the only way firms are able to cut their losses is to reduce their input costs, which are unfortunately by firing workers. For example, businesses will fail as they lack the customers and the cash to sustain their operations for extended periods of time. More specifically, small and medium-sized enterprises, especially in low-margin industries, will be among the, the ones most acutely hit by the economic fallout. Forbes writes that most of the economic disruptions affect the demand side. People can no longer go to work and often lose their jobs and incomes as businesses shutter their operations. Businesses are holding off on their investments amid the growing uncertainty and exports will inevitably falter as other countries are taking similar actions to slow the spread of the virus. As a result, economic interactions by the government should focus on boosting the aggregate demand by increasing consumer, consumer business or government spending or in the form of investment. This includes propositions that replace incomes, especially amongst the lower middle income and income economic classes. This includes families who are more likely to work in heavily impacted sectors and likely do not have the backup safety nets to fall onto. They fail to have enough savings to last them in the coming weeks or even months. However, Congress will also have to take into account measures that support the su supply side if those effects devastate strategic industries or excessively worsen the demand side impact. For instance, by a concentration of hotels and restaurants in tourism-dependent regions, Note, however, in the case that the government does choose to bail out operators in these sectors, there must be strong strings attached so that those who have genuinely need the aid receive it, not just those at the top. Now, one more idea that we need to keep in mind, however, is that the Fed's reach is limited. Recently announced, the Federal Reserve has decided to cut interest rates to yes, zero, in attempts to aggressively respond to the coronavirus's economic impacts. It's important to note that in the short run, lowered rates will have little effect. Why? Because on the one hand, before the spread of the pandemic, some of the more critical rates, such as housing mortgages and business loans, were reasonably low. On the other, other rates, such as car and student loans, as well as credit cards, have remained relatively unaffected by such monetary actions. Furthermore, investment capital is not a priority for corporations and businesses at the moment. Before the outbreak, companies had plenty of opportunities to invest in growth, but chose not to. Uh, as, once again, as for states, at this point, the uncertainty over the economic outlook will likely stymie business investment, and there's little that low interest rates can do to stop that. The same is true for would-be home buyers. Worries about their paychecks will overshadow the benefits of lower mortgage payments, and the Fed's interest rate cuts will do little for the interest payments on the more than $4 trillion in consumer credit. While businesses may be relatively unaffected by the lower interest rates, those who still continue to borrow are helped through lower credit costs. However, this is also likely limited. Moreover, the Fed has even attempted to increase liquidity by reintroducing two programs that were used during the last economic crisis, which helps ensure that banks and corporations are able to execute short-term deals through increased liquidity. The ease with which an asset or security can be converted into cash without affecting its market price. On top of this, the Federal Reserve will likely to continue its efforts to provide support to and monitor credit markets to prevent them from seizing up. These actions will continue to ensure that credit market problems do not exacerbate the current economic conditions of the United States. However, these moves will also do little to push economic growth upward, something that is necessary to escape this negative recessionary gap that we've observed in the United States today. This now shifts the ball into the park of policy fiscal makers.
fiscal policymakers, <laughs> my bad. Um, in other words, where as monetary action has been utilized to its maximum in the current situation. In regards to budgetary work, on the other hand, large-scale intervention that allows federal, state, and local leaders to address their specific problems is a necessary component that we also have to keep in mind. This allows DC to enable and address both the healthcare crisis and economic fallout. Now, let's move into the closing remarks and bigger implications of this podcast. One of the biggest problems that were highlighted throughout the global health pandemic was the massive economic inequality, income, and wealth gap in the United States, and these numbers began to reach an all-time high. More specifically, low-wage workers, African-American and Latinx families, those with less education, and those living in rural households have fewer economic resources when compared to higher-income workers, Caucasian families, those with higher education, and those living in urban homes. These inequities have now developed into a vicious cyclical cycles that many unadvantageous families face, a period that has now been exacerbated by the economic downturn and hurting their chances to move up through social mobility. Now, why is this? Lower income workers tend not to have only lower pay, but also fewer work benefits such as insurance and paid sick leave. Even worse, lower income workers tend to have a heightened chance of becoming infected, losing their jobs, and stuck with significant healthcare bills. Forbes once again writes that those same families who have few savings to fall back on are the ones mired in costly consumer debt, thus could quickly fall further behind in paying their bills. Worse, many of these families need to actually rely more on their own savings than higher income, more financially secure families because they, are, they have less access to public benefits such as unemployment insurance. As a result of these increasingly worsening issues, the American government must be progressive targeting those with the most considerable benefits rather than those who are the most in need. Possible policy implementations include paid sick leave, paid medical and family vacation, and unemployment insurance benefits, which serve as a stepping stone that creates temporary income incomes for those who need help first. Any government action has to keep in mind that a large percentage of the vulnerable population have to use savings. Moreover, focusing on the stock market sends the wrong signal. The stock market has gone through massive gyrations over the past few weeks as investors have oscillated from panic to euphoria and back to fear. President Trump and his advisors have often expressed more concern for what is happening on Wall Street than what is happening to families. Yet most Americans own few or no strong stocks on Wall Street. Let's look again an excerpt from the Forbes study that explains why this is the case. Now, Zach, thank you. We're going to see that the financial market's ups and downs have little immediate impact on them. Boosting the stock market will do little to their current and future financial health. Worse, focusing on stabilizing or even rescuing Wall Street is going to create massive problems for the average American. Giving broad tax breaks to corporations that already sat on large amounts of cash is an inefficient use of money. Many of them will survive the downturn without a short-term cash infusion. And many CEOs will feel empowered by the rhetoric on saving the stock market to prioritize profits and shareholders by squeezing workers now during a recovery. This is precisely what happened after the stock market crash of 2001 and the Great Recession. Congress and the administration need to be ready to avoid a repeat. Importantly, Congress should provide only targeted and limited relief to businesses and simultaneously ensure that worker benefits from such assistance before shareholders and CEOs do. With all these ideas considered, it is important to understand that yes, you should take into account all the analysis and information uh, we've provided, but also to conclude with your own ideas as well. With that, we come to an end of our fourth video of the series. As always, please hit us up on our different platforms if you have any additional questions about the information that we've discussed here. 
And other than that, that's all we have for our short version of episode four. <laughs> Remember, folks, stay true to yourself. It's in your hands. Stay safe, stay active, stay tuned for upcoming episodes. This is Elevate Thinking. Signing, Signing off. off.